First Peter chapter two. Now, brother, as we read through here, I want you to be carefully reading along the context. It's very easy often when someone else is reading to just begin to kind of drift and wait till the rest of the talking begins. But let's genuinely join our hearts together, read the Word of God carefully, and let's notice the things that are similar in what Peter says to each of the categories of people that he addresses. Very important uh, <clears throat> for our theme this evening. All right, let's begin at verse 11. Brethren, let us hear God's holy word. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God Endure grief, suffering wrongfully. But what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well, and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self Bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won 
by the conversation of the wives. While they uphold, excuse me, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair or of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Amen. May the Lord be pleased to bless His Word to our souls this evening. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, lived in submission to Joseph and Mary, who were both weak, sinful, and limited human beings. He also lived in absolute submission to His heavenly Father in every aspect of His life, even His cruel death upon the cross. This was the heart and soul of His life upon earth. This was life for Him. As John chapter 4 verse 34 says, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. My food, that upon which I feast, that which sustains me, that without which there is no life, is the will of my Father in heaven. Now, Christ's people are to live the same way. This should not surprise us. Who dwells within us by the power of His Spirit? But Christ, who, who uh, if I can say it, feasted on His Father's will. With whom are we in eternal union? But Christ, who feasted upon His Father's will. Our meat as God's dear, beloved, and redeemed children are to feast upon our Father's will regardless of the cost. This is life for Christians. Their love for good works, their submission to authority, and their respect 
for those who are unworthy of it are to be the hallmarks of their very lives. Now, if you'll notice, and I trust, I'm I'm sure numerous thoughts filled our hearts and minds, Uh, I trust not in a distracting way, as we were reading along and we were beginning to see certain similarities, but I trust that one of the things that you noticed is that in, in every category addressed, there's always a connection to God. Our works are to be seen by men. Why? For God's sake. And, and everyone here is called upon to do what they do in some relation to God. Our lives as God's children are utterly inseparable from our Father in heaven. We're to live by Him. We're to live unto Him. And every work that we do, including submission to unworthy authorities, is to be into Him. And it is no different with this difficult subject which we approach again this evening. Wives who are married to men disobedient to the Word of God or to live in submission to them. So, we are considering wives who are to be in subjection to their own husbands, even lost men. Now, that is why this message is entitled once again, If Any Obey Not the Word. That will probably be the title in the next few. This is part two. Now, if you will remember, we observed that the passage passage before us contains at least three main thoughts. Number one, the wife's responsibility of submission. Number two, the wife's difficult trial in submission. And number three, the wife's beauty in submission. Now, with this message, we continue to think through the meaning of submission. The meaning of submission, which comes under the uh, first main thought that we're considering, the wife's responsibility. The wife's responsibility. Now, in our last study, we considered what submission means. And we looked at a number of uh, applications and, and we dug down just a little bit to try to get a hold of what submission really means. Tonight, we want to spend our time on what it doesn't mean. What it does not mean. And that's about all we're going to think about. It's one of the nice things about doing some of these informal studies like this is we're not particularly bound uh, to have to uh, hammer through everything Uh, in the way that we normally would with an expository message. Uh, So we want to take up this evening what submission does not mean. And the very first thing that uh, is on our list is this. Submission does not mean that the husband takes Christ's place. 
Submission does not mean that the husband takes Christ's place. The Holy Scriptures are filled with the notion of federal or representative relationships. However, this doesn't mean that husbands are Christ. It does not mean that they are little Christs. It means that they are Christ's representative as heads of the home. One of the reasons that we take strong disagreement with the Church of Rome is because the Pope is called in many of their writings Christ on earth. It was for this very reason that the Reformers often called the Pope the Antichrist because they believed it, and I believe rightfully so, blasphemous for a man to say that he is in Christ's stead, in Christ's room on earth. Quite obviously, this is why, ultimately, the doctrine was canonized in the Romish church that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, when he speaks in uh, from the throne of Peter, so to speak, that it's infallible. Husbands are not popes either. They are Jesus Christ's representatives. Now, what does this mean? It means that they are to act on Christ's behalf that they are to lovingly and faithfully and in those times when necessary, firmly and adamantly administer Christ's Word in the home. They're not little Christs. They are men, as 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, who themselves have a head. And that head is Jesus Christ. And as Christ's brother, on one hand, they are Christ's servants, on the other. They are heads of their home only because Christ has appointed them to represent Him and to administer His Word in their homes. So, in doing this, they are to establish Christ's kingdom under their roofs. Now, I realize we're talking to the women tonight, but let me stop and talk to you husbands just for a few moments. Do you really think in these terms that you have been appointed and are responsible for, and will give account for, 
establishing the kingdom of Christ in your house. This is what you're to do. So it should be a glorious, wonderful kingdom of love, righteousness, purity in your home. So, there will be times, no doubt, that the Word of God does not speak directly to certain issues. And it means, then, that the husband must do his dead-level best to discover the mind of Christ through prayer, the study of the Word, and counsel of other godly men, and then apply it. And that will also mean that there will be times when a husband and a wife won't agree. Now, a man is a fool. And I say that in a biblical sense. I do not say it in an insulting sense. I mean it in the way the Bible most often uses it, meaning one without understanding. A man is a fool if he doesn't often, regularly, consult his wife on every major decision for the home. This is not giving up your headship. Now, letting her make all the decisions, that's, that's to uh, abuse your headship. But if you've got any wisdom whatsoever, the fact is that the two of you together should always be considering the decisions that need to be made in your home, biblically, and and this is why and you've heard me say this before, but I that this is a I pound on this anvil a good bit. This is why it isn't well, sweetheart. How do you feel about this? The issue about how we feel about anything is is not what's important. It's what do you think about this. What do you believe about this? We're to use our minds upon the Word of God not to intuit upon the Word of God or even just internally, hmm, what's the vibe this morning? Oh, don't feel well. Let's not do it. Now, what's the point in saying this? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm laying down the, 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 the standard, I trust, so that we can understand the unfortunate situation being addressed in 1 Peter chapter 3. Because a man must be the head of his home, and if he is wise, he will, he will constantly consult his wife, pray with her, not make a move in any major direction without talking with her, making sure that she's with him whenever possible. In all these decisions, Yet there will be times when he will have to say, Sweetheart, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you, you don't agree with me. I'm sorry that you don't see this as I do. But I'm utterly convinced before God, having studied the Word of God, having prayed in light of the Word of God, 
And having sought good counselors, there's safety in the multitude of counselors, I've talked to other godly men within the assembly and with whom I have relations. And everything seems to be as plain as daylight that this is the way we ought to go. Let's go together. Well, there'll be times then, ladies, you'll need to do just that. With the great relief that he's the one that's going to have to answer for that, that decision. And it doesn't hurt, as I've said in the past, for you to remind him that he will answer for those decisions. Not to say these things in an unkind way, not in a provocative way. Yeah, well, you're the one that's going to answer for this. But just to say, all right, sweetheart, I just want to make sure you've prayed and really thought this through because, after all, you will be the one who answers to the Lord regarding this. That's a good sober thing to do. Don't ever use it in a taunting way. So now what do you do, ladies, if you're dealing with a man who doesn't obey the Word of God? That's what Peter's going after. Well, submission does not mean that the husband takes Christ's place. You see how important this is. He does not become the Word of God for you as such. He's to be the representative administering the Word of God. And if He does not so, that of course, of course puts you in a very painful and a very unpleasant situation sometimes. But just remember that submission does not mean that He is Christ. Now, I'm not trying to give you ammunition to rebel against your husband. Don't be taking this in the wrong way. Don't let this be a rope that you hang yourself with. We're talking about the fact that a man in and of himself does not take Christ's holy place. So, if your husband is an unbeliever and almost all are agreed that when it says uh, the husband does not obey the Word of God, that what is being pointed to here is a lost man, that what you should do is obey. Submit to him with humility and trust your God. Leave the matter at that point in His hand. If He is a lost man, He can and only will think like a lost man. And it will be vital for you in holding forth your testimony as a Christian to submit yourself to his leadership. And that may mean many, many, many times of heartbreaking, <laughs> looking at heartbreaking decisions. But leave these in the Lord's hand. Now we're going to see uh, fairly soon, I believe, uh, not tonight, 
we'll see that some of the things I'm going to eventually lay out with this passage can also be applied to a professing Christian husband who is not doing what he's supposed to do. The principles don't change. And let me make this abundantly clear. When a man is not doing what the Word of God commands him to do as the head of his home, the very best thing that can be said about him is that he's living like a lost man. Husbands do not hide under grace, grace, amazing grace to not fulfill, or not to fulfill what you're commanded to do. You must do what God has called you to do. But uh, insofar as a man who professes to be a Christian won't do what the Word of God says, then quite obviously we have to take these principles of dealing with a lost man and, and apply them to the man who says he's a Christian who happens to be dishonoring his Lord in those things and himself is in rebellion against the Lord. So, I hope this is clear because uh, this, is, this is a very narrow issue with great gaping uh, chasms on either side. The truth is one of those razor-sharp edges to have to walk on on this one. But I close this first thought with submission does not mean that the husband takes Christ's place. But you should submit, even if he's a lost man, humbly committing yourself entirely to your Father in heaven. Secondly, submission does not mean abandoning moral behavior if the husband demands it. This goes hand in hand with the first point. Submission does not mean abandoning moral, and when I say moral, I don't mean in a general sense, I mean according to the Word of God. It does not mean abandoning righteous behavior if the husband demands it. And again, this is a very fine line. The result of a clear understanding of uh, the first point naturally leads us to this. A husband must not demand his wife to disobey Christ, but sometimes they do. If he does, at that point, she is under no obligation to her husband but unto Christ. Now, and this is where sometimes the lines are a little difficult to see. If the man is lost, he's going to expect you to do many, many, many things. Worldly things. Things that may grieve your heart. Things that may sting your, your conscience. And... At this point, a Christian woman is going to have to very carefully weigh what she will and will not do. I know of a, a circumstance 
where a, a woman married a man. She was a godly sister. Uh, the man had professed to be a Christian, but they were no sooner married than virtually all pretenses of it stopped. Uh, men can get mighty religious if they want a woman. But once they have her, they don't keep up the pretense. Some men. And he then immediately wanted her to do absolutely everything that he did with her. If he wanted to go to a football game, which she had no interest, she would rather be at home uh, studying the Word of God or doing some of her duties in the house. And he asked her to do many things. He'd want to go to this or to this kind of convention. He wanted her company, thankfully, in many things in, in which she was troubled. She didn't want to go and spend three hours or the Lord's money on a football game. And she would call and say, what do I do? Now, those are hard questions. But I said, pray, commit yourself to the Lord. And go root with Him. Because in and of itself, that activity is not rebellion against God. Whether we think it's the best use of time or the best use of money uh, is one thing. But when we are called upon to do things that are difficult, that's especially hard for a woman, she needs to do so. He may want to spend money in, in particularly uh, unwise ways. She may wisely, humbly offer to him what she believes would be a better way to use it, but be ready for him to go ahead and spend it the way he wants to. But if he requires her to do things that are clear rebellions against the Word of God, she must obey Christ. And that's why you have to be able, sisters, to determine biblically what is genuinely and biblically defined Find as sin. Well, I don't want to go to the company party. Accompanying your husband in and of itself is not sinful. It may be a distasteful evening. But it is not sinful. But if he requires you knowingly to sin against the living God. We're going to cheat our income taxes. We need more money this year. I want you to change our books and do this. She has every right to say, I love you. You're my husband. But to do this would be to break my God's commandments. And while I love you and esteem you as the head of this house, I cannot break the commandments of the head of heaven and earth. Those are tough times. But sisters, let me give you some encouragement 
God blesses in these things. He does. And there will be times when He, you will, you will have issues perhaps that you will have to struggle with tremendously. And thankfully, I'm not having to speak to my knowledge to any of the women that are here directly. Glean from this what you will. But Charles Spurgeon offers this uh, extraordinary anecdote in one of his sermons on persecution. Quote, says, There was a poor godly woman who used to attend the ministry of Mr. Robinson of Leicester, and her husband, a very coarse, brutal man, said to her one day in his wrath, If you ever go to St. Mary's Church again, I'll cut both your legs off. He was a dreadful man and equal to any violence. But on the next occasion of worship, his wife went as aforetime. As she came home, she commended herself to the care of God as Christ commended himself to his Father here in this context, expecting to be assailed. Her husband said to her, Where have you been? I've been at St. Mary's Church, said she. With that, he felled her to the ground with a terrible blow on the face. Rising up, she gently said, If you strike me on the other side, I shall as freely forgive you as I do now. She had been a very passionate woman before conversion. He doesn't mean passionate in a good sense. (laughs) He meant before she was converted. Uh, She could be extremely emotionally untamed. She had been a very passionate woman before conversion and had been accustomed to give her husband as good as he could send. If he hit her, she swung back. That's what he's saying. And therefore, he, he was struck with her gentleness. Where did you learn this patience? Said he. Her reply was, By God's grace, I learned it at St. Mary's. I was taught it in the church of Jesus Christ. Then you may go as often as you like. Presently, he went also, and the war was over. There is nothing like meekness. It will conquer the strongest. The Proverbs tell us, do they not? A soft tongue breaketh the bone. Virgin also shares this humbling story. Quote, For cruel words return warmer love. This is a commandment. For cruel words, he's saying, return warmer love. No matter how hard the words are, overcome it with bigger words of love. And increased kindness. The most renowned weapon for a Christian to fight his antagonist with is that of overcoming evil with good. 
Evil to evil is beast-like, and no Christian will indulge in it. But good for evil is Christ-like, and we must practice it. I think I have before told you the story of the husband who was a very loose, gay, depraved man of the world. Trust you understand gay there is not the way it's used in our society. Here it means of a party spirit. But he had a wife who for many years bore with his ridicule and unkindness, praying for him day and night, though no change came over him, except that he grew even more bold in sin. One night, being at a drunken feast with a number of his boon companions, that means merry companion, he boasted that his wife would do anything he wished, She was as submissive as a lamb. Now, he said, she's going to bed hours ago, but if I take you all to my house at once, she will get up and entertain you and make no complaint. Now, that's how wicked men are. When they've got a godly wife and she's walking in this way, he's even going to take her goodness and use it against her. Not she, they said. And the matter ended in a bet. And away they went. That sounds like a group of guys, doesn't it? It was in the small hours of the night, but in a few minutes she was up and remarked that she was glad that she had two chickens ready. And if they would wait a little, she would soon have a supper spread for them. They waited and ere long, at that late hour, the table was spread and she took her place at it as if it was quite an ordinary matter, acting the part of the hostess with cheerfulness. One of the company, touched in his better feelings, exclaimed, Madam, we ought to apologize to you for intruding upon you in this way and at such an hour, but I am at a loss to understand how it is You receive us so cheerfully. For being a religious person, you cannot approve of our conduct. Her reply was, I and my husband were both formerly unconverted, but by the grace of God, I am now a believer in the Lord Jesus. I have daily prayed for my husband, and I have done all I can to bring him to a better mind. But as I see no change in him, I fear he will be lost forever. And I have made up my mind to make him as happy as I can while he is here. They went away and her husband said, Do you really think I I shall be unhappy forever? I fear so, said she. I would to God you would repent and seek forgiveness. That night, patience accomplished her desire. He was soon found with her on the way to heaven. Yield on no point of principle, but in everything else be willing to bear reproach and to be despised and mocked at for Christ's sake. 
by the cross, patiently born, thou conquerest. This is a hard saying, says one. I know it is, but but grace can make the heaviest burden light and transform duty into delight. Close quote. Some women would have told him to take a hike. Some women might have gotten up and dutifully done it, grinding their teeth. But the spirit of the kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth is manifest when unkind, wicked, and unfair requests are made. And they're not only done, but done in a cheerful spirit. What did this woman have a hold of? Notice that her her testimony was, I was lost once. In other words, I know what lost people are like. But Christ in heaven had mercy on me. And now, I fear for my husband's soul. Brethren, can you not hear the Spirit of Christ here? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lost people can't act anyway but lost. It is our place, and sisters, in this circumstance, your place to manifest the kingdom of Christ on earth. Christ turned the other cheek and called us to do so. And do not think that when you say, sure, I'm willing to do that, that it will not come. Let me share one more anecdote with you, then we'll move on to the next place. Again, I am uncomfortable often sharing my own history, but when there is place for it to honor Christ, then may He have all the glory. My own father was an alcoholic, a proud man, and one who mocked those who worshiped the Lord Jesus. I do not say this to attack his memory, because I loved my father deeply. But my mother, who did all she could by the grace of God to walk with Christ in a very difficult and sometimes an extremely humiliating and painful circumstance, did what she could to hold forth the very grace of Christ as this passage so recommends. When I was a child, a little bitty fellow, my father said to my mother, I don't want you taking him to church. Church is for weaklings. 
She said, may I go? He said, you can go. That's fine. But you're not taking him. Now that just about crushed her heart beyond words. And I say, with all respect for my beloved mother, she commended herself. She commended me to the grace of God. And she left me there with my dad on Sundays and went to church to worship. After about two weeks, my father said, take him to church with you. He liked to spend Sunday morning in bed, reading his newspaper, maybe getting up and watching a game. I got up before daylight and was ready to play. And I wanted to play. If I was going to be at home, I thought everybody ought to play with me. And in the Lord's mercy, He used that. And He honored my mother's excruciating decision. And God in His mercy... released me that I might hear His Word. Wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the Word, they also may without the Word be won by the conversation of the wives. I stand here tonight preaching the Word of God because a woman trusting the Word of God obeyed the Word of God and the God of heaven and earth honored it. So, There will be moments when a woman who is married to an unbelieving man will be faced with decisions that will crush and pierce and threaten to pull apart her tender heart. But sisters, there is a God in heaven. And if He had mercy upon your soul, then you can see your husband for what he is. A man who needs mercy. Unless he demands you to break the Word of God. Humbly submit, trusting the God of heaven and earth. Well, thirdly, Submission does not mean sacrificing independent thought. (coughs) 
Submission does not mean sacrificing independent thought. It doesn't mean the husband thinks, the woman simply emotes or just jumps in line and locks steps behind what he says without thinking. And very often there are those who have read these kinds of passages and say, ah, see, all you want is for women to be barefoot and pregnant and cooking your dinner, and that's it. They're not to be educated, they're not to be this, that, and the other. And unfortunately, there are are, are boorish men uh, who want it that way, but not Christian men. This does not mean that a woman relinquish her abilities to think. As a matter of fact, as a child of God, her mind has been purchased by the blood of Christ upon His cross. She's been given a new heart and she is to love the Lord with all of her heart and with all of her soul, all of her strength, all of her mind. Women, you are to think. And you are to think well. And that is why you must constantly be filling your mind with the Word of God. You need to think and pray about what the Word of God says. You must fill your soul with that glorious truth and learn how to walk in it. Learn how to walk in it. And think carefully because there will be times when you will be thinking better than your husband and if it is I know there are some of us where that may even be the majority but the fact is that there are going to be times when you must be able to speak plainly and clearly from the word of God And that too is honored by the living God. Sarah, who's brought up in our passage, at one time said to her husband, Here, look, I'm too old to have a baby. You're too old. But you may still be able to have children. It's I've been barren, so there's all likelihood that uh, you can still have children. You, you take my Hagar here and you have a child by her. That must be what God wants us to do. Well, this was very bad thinking. And it was very unbiblical thinking. And Abraham, had he been thinking more clearly, would have said, I don't think this is what the Lord had in mind. This is not what His promise involves. But he followed through with what his wife recommended. And then he broke his own heart because the child that he had by Hagar was not the child of the promise. But at a later time, Genesis chapter 21, in verse 9, it says, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which he had borne unto Abraham, mocking. He was mocking Now that Sarah had Isaac, and she actually, by God's miraculous intervention, that barren womb gave birth to the child of promise. But Hagar's son, now probably about 13 years old, is mocking. 
Sarah saw it. Verse 10, Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son. So before she would said, Now look, here's Hagar, you take her. Now she's saying, Get rid of her. Get rid of the boy too. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. She had understood, finally, when God said, you're going to bear a son. She believed. And the Lord was faithful to His promise. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham, uh, in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, Hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. At one point, Sarah's counsel was bad, and Abraham was foolish to follow it. As the head of his home, he erred greatly. But here, as he's resisting, What she's saying, God Himself says, listen to your wife. Why? Because she was speaking in accord with the covenant of God. She was speaking in harmony with the promise God had made. In other words, she was standing on the promises. She was standing on the Word of God. She was speaking from God's Word. And the Lord said, Abraham, you need to be listening at this point. Not because Sarah now was the head of the home, but because she was speaking. She had thought clearly and recognized that Isaac was in fact the child of the promise and this was the heir of God's promises. There's a threat to the child of promise. You need to send them on. And her independent thinking there was completely in harmony with the Word of God. And Abraham was admonished of the Father in heaven to hear what she had to say. Sisters, submission to your husband does not mean that you become an unthinking robot. You are to constantly fill your mind and sharpen your thinking with the Word of God. And at moments when there's tension and there's a difficult decision to be made, your speaking the Word of God may clearly be honored of the Lord to speak to your husband. That's why number four is Submission does not mean abandoning all attempts to influence a husband. While First Peter tells us, and we're going to see this in a little more detail in uh, the next couple of weeks, God willing, while Peter tells us without a word the husband is one, there are times where with wisdom there's a place to remind a husband one more time of what God says. Now, of course, this is more applicable, obviously, in a Christian marriage. But I'm just saying, 
that submission does not mean, and Peter is not saying that from that point on you never say anything whatsoever about God. It does mean, however, as we will see, that you should simply live the Word of God before your lost husband. But there may be those blessed moments where in certain circumstances God opens the door. You have to learn how to listen for the hinges creaking. And then speak humbly, quickly, and truthfully according to the Word of God. And so all of this means, in conclusion, that submission, however it may be viewed by the lost world, is not a weakness, but an extraordinary strength for a woman to live with a man and not preach at him not constantly be telling him what the Bible says, to, to live virtually in silence and simply to live the truth of God's Word is not a weakness. That is a strength that can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit and the new birth. To independently think is something that comes by the, the glorious workings of the Lord Jesus Christ in the heart of a woman. And to recognize that a husband is not the replacement of Christ, yet to submit to a lost man with the full knowledge that he's not going to walk according to the Word of God. That is not weakness. And only the blinded mind and heart could think so. It is a strength that emulates and glorifies Jesus Christ. So, may these things take hold of our hearts. May those who hear the tapes, who are actually in this situation, find strength, consolation, and encouragement to press on in difficult circumstances. And I trust that we'll see that sisters, you will, by God's mercy and grace, those married to lost men, may see Him under the Lord Jesus Christ. And sisters here, you may even eventually, applying some of these principles to a husband in one of his worst moments, or in a season of bad moments, bring glory to Christ and blessing to Him. Let's pray. These are difficult passages to work through, Father, especially in our day that so despises the notion of submission. But as we have seen now for two messages, submission is not weakness, but it is a glorious, otherworldly strength that speaks of the rule of Jesus Christ and His kingdom on earth. Oh, may those who hear this message take it to heart, learn in whatever situation they're in to cheerfully live the truth, even if it means long, long seasons of silence. And Father, I do pray with all of my heart
that we will hear of many victories of husbands won without a word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.